This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Hour number two underway on this Tuesday afternoon in the Mile High City. 21st day of November 2023. Sandy Clef, Sean Rotar. Sean is off this week. He will be returning on Monday, as will we after our program ends today, because uh, tomorrow and obviously on Thanksgiving and Friday as well, we will be off here. Enjoy the holiday weekend and festivities. Uh, the sports action uh, will continue. By, by the way, Danny, did see you win or lose that uh, Sunshine Slam? Is that's what it's It was like? the Sunshine Slam yeah. Championship against the Florida, Florida State, State Seminoles. They lost in overtime, unfortunately. Unfortunately. All right. Uh, too bad. Too bad. They uh, Both teams had shots at the end of regulation and uh, couldn't break the tie, so they uh, played in overtime. See who goes down for the first time this year. Um, See who was ranked 18th in the country this week. Uh, obviously, they rose from 25th to 18th. They'll probably fall back down. They may fall out of the top 25. Who knows? Lots of tournaments going on uh, this week. CU's involved in one. Uh, there is uh, a Maui tournament that is being played uh, uh, on the island of Honolulu, but it benefits those affected by the terrible hurricane, and uh, particularly the people at uh, Kansas have been especially generous in their efforts uh, to uh, donate for uh, all those people who are uh, affected and uh, still are affected uh, by the damage inflicted uh, by that hurricane months ago. So a lot going on in sports. Yes, the college basketball season, very, very, very much underway. And uh, CU women uh, knocked off SMU, I believe, uh, the other day. So uh, the CU women, I think, remain undefeated. Uh, last they are 4 and 0, number four 3 and in the country. Number 3 in the country now. They were uh, number 5, now number 3 in uh, the nation. So, congratulations to uh, the CU women on their start. And um, it, it's it's an interesting time up in Boulder with respect to the Colorado football program. Uh, their game for bowl qualification purposes against Utah this upcoming weekend means nothing. But uh, Deion Sanders, uh, very much aware uh, of the holes on his roster, but made it clear today, and we'll just let you listen to this, made it clear today that he has no plans to use money to buy players in order to lure recruits, saying, among other things, that, hey, we're not running an ATM here. What I wish the NCAA would do, honestly, uh, if you're committed to somewhere, you can't go to no other visits. I wish that would be. Like, if you're committed, that means you're committed. You can't go to no other visits. So why would you be committed, but you still let kids go to other places? That don't make sense. So that means they just plan. They just plan. And one thing about it, we're not an ATM. That's not going to happen here. If you come to Colorado to play football, 
for me at Colorado Buffaloes because you really want to play football and receive a wonderful education and all the business stuff is going to be handled on the back end if that's the case. But we are not an ATM. You're not coming here to get rich unless you really come here with a plan to go to the NFL and get your degree. Not to come here uh, and be money bag yo. Okay? That a rapper, right? It is. I got that one right. <laughs> we want players who want us, says Deion Sanders, trying to convince somebody and doing that, being held hostage financially, we ain't with that. We're not going to buy anybody whatsoever. We have tremendous needs. I'm pretty sure everybody in the country knows what we need and how much we need. That's not a secret, and recruits are responding. All right? Trust me. There's not a day that goes by, says Deion Sanders, that kids aren't blowing our recruiting staff up. They're calling and we're responding. Now, one of Colorado's two offensive line commitments in the class the other day flipped to Missouri. And why not? Missouri's ranked 10th in the country this week and has really turned its program around. That happened earlier this week. And four-star 2025 commit, Winston Watkins, who committed to Colorado the day Sanders was hired at CU, decommitted from the Buffaloes on Sunday. So that's what his reference point was when he was talking about, hey, you make a commitment, you should be held to it, you shouldn't be able to make other visits. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. Uh Dion saying a kid ain't even faithful to his girlfriend. You think he's going to be faithful to a school? Come on, man. That's an emotional thing. What I wish the NCAA would do, and you heard him say this, if you're committed somewhere, you can't go on any other visits. If you're committed, that means you're committed. These are kids we're talking about. You can't go on no other visits. Why would you be committed, but you're still letting kids go on other visits? because they're not binding commitments, and every coach in the country knows that. Every coach in the country, yes, and I mean every coach in the country, at some point loses a recruit who committed to that school. Happens to everybody. And maybe Deion Sanders isn't used to having that happen to him, but it happens to Everybody. Can't go on. No other visits. Why would you be committed, but you're still letting kids go on other visits? That means you just playing. Well, a lot of folks, including coaches, decide to recruit somebody, kind of sort of commit to them, and then never follow up. And that has happened as a matter of fact, at CU in recent years. And that is, as they say, a known fact. (laughs) Forgive the redundancy. Uh, Some programs, and I guess Clemson might be at the top of the list, do have a policy of considering players who are still taking visits not committed to the program. However, 
Commitments are non-binding by NCAA rules until a player signs a letter of intent. Recruits can only sign letters of intent during a 72-hour window of the early signing period from December 20th through the 22nd this year and after National Signing Day in February. Sanders went on to say, even with the loss of one of the few offensive line commits they've gotten, who is a three-star who was not ranked among the top 1,000 high school prospects in the country, and also losing a four-star for 2025, we haven't lost nothing we want. Trust me on that one. So I'm, I'm a little confused as to what the message is here. You're really bothered that people who had committed to you decommitted and or decided to go elsewhere. But you really didn't want them in the first place, apparently, because you say we haven't lost. I'll clean up the grammar. <laughs> we haven't lost anyone we really wanted here at the University of Colorado. But you're upset about the guys who did not uphold, quote-unquote, uphold their commitments. So that that's a little confusing. Uh, Colorado, as we all know, took more transfers than any program in college football last year and figures to be, again, a fixture, although not quite in the same way, in the transfer portal again in 2023. The 30-day portal window opens on December 4th, which would be a Monday, I believe. It would be, what, a week from this coming Monday. Am I right on that? Or two weeks from That yesterday. is correct, yep. All right. That's when coaches are allowed to contact players who have entered their names in the database and wish to be contacted with other opportunities Players have 30 days to enter the portal, but can select schools at any time. Sanders said today, last year, you had to fill a void of everything. This year, you've seen what we have and what we don't have. Now it's more focused. We know what we want, and we're going to go get it. I promise you that. I, I again see that he might in a few months be able to make the case we got what we wanted from the portal. We went and got it. But a few weeks ago after the UCLA game, Deion Sanders basically said we need to replace the entire offensive line. You can't build an offensive line through the transfer portal. First of all, offensive linemen who enter the transfer portal aren't playing as often as they think they should. And in spite of what their own views may be, they're not playing in most cases because they aren't good enough to play more than they do. They aren't good enough to start. So you're bringing in guys who almost by definition weren't good enough to play at a program against which you are competing whether it's the Pac-12 or the Big 12, CU will be, of course, in the Big 12 next year. 
But he talks about being more focused. Well, okay, that's great. You're focused on help for the offensive line and the defensive line. It doesn't appear that on the offensive line you get much help on the recruiting trail. You may have already recruited a couple of defensive linemen or are said to be four stars. Great. And we said earlier, I would say between the two, CU is a little bit further ahead on the defensive line than on the offensive line. But this is what happens. You begin the season 3-0. and There's the offseason with all the attention and all the notoriety. And fans get excited, and fans may still be excited. And I can, I can understand that especially if the quarterback comes back next year. Travis Hunter is not eligible for the draft, so even if he wanted to go pro, he could not. He would not be eligible. So they will have a lot of these guys at the so-called skill positions back next year. And they did begin this year 3-0, and and they did ascend into the top 20 in the national rankings. But since they've lost seven of eight, the team they beat, Arizona State is now 3-8. and eight. That was the only win they've had over the past two months. And, of course, lost, as we mentioned earlier, 56-14 at Washington State last Friday night. They closed the season on Saturday at Utah, a game they are unlikely to win. Um, I do give Deion Sanders credit for answering the question. I suspect it's something he did want to talk about. The news is out there that they lost a couple of recruits over the weekend. And he wanted to respond to that. I can see the reason that he would look at the offensive line recruit, who's only a three-star, and say, we probably can live without him. We probably have guys who are as good and maybe even a little better than that particular player would have been next year for CU. And the other one's a 2025 recruit, and from all indications, their 2025 recruiting class looks to be, at this point, quite a bit stronger than the recruiting class for 2024, which I believe, I'll stand corrected if I'm wrong, right now they have nine commits for 2024, and that's it. And no one of note on the offensive line, and that's the area they need the help the most. He says they'll get help in the transfer portal, but that's what they said last year. And in fairness, they did not boast that the offensive line would be the strength of the team, But they did say the offensive line would be better this year than it was last year. The team is better, clearly better, 4-8 versus 1-11. I'm not sure the offensive line is a lot better. And, again, I'll make the point that Justin Adams of CBS 4 made to us a few weeks ago. There are three linemen who left this program, who are now starting for Florida State, Purdue, and UCLA, respectively. 
Florida State, without its quarterback, is probably no longer in the hunt for the college football playoff. Realistically. But UCLA is one of the top 35 teams in the country. Purdue is not, admittedly. But if you weren't good enough to start here and you were good enough to start at Purdue, you're probably better than the guys they had starting this year along the offensive line. And I would say that certainly that would be true of the two guys who went to Florida State and UCLA. Florida State and UCLA have much better offensive lines than the University of Colorado has. Last year, this year, and probably next year. When we come back, we'll turn our attention to the Broncos. This is our last chance to talk about the Broncos this week. I know it's only Tuesday and their upcoming game with the Cleveland Browns. And Kansas City lost last night. Now, I don't think that helps the Broncos all that much, but let's just make this point. Although they've been non-conference losses, the Chiefs have lost two games at home this year. The Broncos have lost three games at home this year and did beat the Chiefs finally at home. Kansas City has lost two of its three games at home, and they were up 17-7 last night before falling to the Philadelphia Eagles. Again, giving further evidence that at least for the moment, the Philadelphia Eagles are the class of the National Football League. Stay with us on Mile High Sports. Can't make friends. Pray for better days, and that's 300K when my day ends. Sandy Cuff and Chantro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. The Denver Broncos are set up to face the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday as we continue. Sandy and Sean here on Mile High Sports. Sean Drotar off. He will be back on Monday. We'll all be returning on Monday, of course, here on Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, milehighsports.com slash watch, or milehighsports.com slash listen. We are coming to you via the Mile High Sports app as well, and our executive producer is the great Danny Bailey. You can call or text us at 303-831-1340. Broncos looking at the Browns on Sunday, and for the next couple of weeks, the Broncos will be looking at playoff teams in the Cleveland Browns and the Houston Texans. 
as they were looking at a playoff team, at least at the moment, on Sunday night. Even with a loss, the Minnesota Vikings are the seventh and final qualifying team at the moment for the NFC playoffs. Behind Dallas and Seattle as wild cards, and of course behind division leaders Philadelphia, Detroit, San Francisco, and New Orleans. Nothing in the order of the conference standings changed last night when Philadelphia went to 9-1 and against the Chiefs in Kansas City by winning on Monday Night Football. The Chiefs are now 7-3, and and uh, as a matter of fact, I'm mistaken about that. Baltimore vaults ahead of Kansas City now into first place in the AFC with a record of 8-3, and and Kansas City, Jacksonville, and Miami are all division leaders at the moment. At seven and three, Cleveland is seven and three coming in here with uh, the number one defense in the NFL and number one by a wide margin, uh, whether it's uh, yards you're looking at or other metrics. Uh, the Browns have a sensational defense and very good special teams. The Cleveland Browns have perhaps the most valuable player this year in the National Football League in defensive end, Miles Garrett. Uh, one of the premier pass rushers in the league, if not the leading pass rusher this year in the National Football League. And uh, behind uh, Cleveland as a wild card in the AFC at the moment, 6-4 Houston, Pittsburgh also at 6-4, Buffalo at 6-5, Indy and Denver along with Cincinnati at 5-5, the Raiders at 5-6, the Chargers at four and six, along with the Jets. Tennessee three and seven, and New England two and eight. So the Broncos have improved their position. There's no question of that. But these next uh, four games are critical. There are games in there as uh, we look at uh, the remaining schedule for the season. The Broncos have games in these uh, next four weeks against Cleveland and Houston and the Chargers, and then an easy one, the Lions in Detroit. Now, I mentioned the Lions last, not just for chronological reasons, but for the fact that that is a non-conference game. And the other three or conference games, one, of course, against the Chargers, a divisional game. The most important games of those four are the three conference games. Now, if you look at the Broncos right now at at 5-5, and and you figure 10-7 and might get them in to the playoffs. Probably wouldn't win the division, but could very well get them into the playoffs. That means they have to win five of the remaining seven games. Sometimes in the NFL, you have to lose the right games. You can lose the wrong games or win the wrong games, and it doesn't help you that much. If, If you could win three of the next four games, you want those three wins coming against AFC teams. You want those three wins coming against Cleveland, especially Cleveland at home, Houston on the road, which could conceivably end up being a tiebreaker game. Certainly want that game. Because right now the Broncos are one game behind the Texans. And you want the Chargers game. 
and you have two games against the Chargers, which may or may not be a good thing. Right now, it would appear to be a very good thing for the Broncos to have three divisional games remaining on the schedule, two against the Chargers, and one against the Raiders. Now, the game against the Raiders would be in Las Vegas. I assume that Pierce would still be the coach, and the Raiders do seem to be playing a better brand of football, especially on defense, with Josh McDaniels gone and Antonio Pierce as the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. The Chargers, mm, they're in last place right now. They have replaced the Broncos as the last place team in the AFC West. And the Chargers are in the midst of what would seem to be an internal crisis. The head coach, very defensive after their loss at Green Bay on Sunday. Their defense ranking near the bottom of the league in most every major defensive category. Joey Bosa, perhaps their best defensive player, now hurt. Khalil Mack on the backside of his career. James, same story. Lots of missed tackles. With four minutes to go in Green Bay on Sunday, the Chargers led 20-16, to 16, and the Packers were back deep in their own territory facing third and 20. Chargers bailed them out by committing a foul that resulted in an automatic first down and proceeded to fall apart from there, give up, the game-winning touchdown, as it turned out, and were finally unable to respond offensively, although half a dozen drop passes earlier in the game probably meant more than anything that happened on that last drive. Uh, At least four. At least four drop passes earlier in the game. They dropped some late in the game, too. The Chargers right now are a bad football team that would seem to be in disarray, but the Chargers have one player who is not playing as if the season is over, and that's Justin Herbert, the quarterback. Austin Eckler fumbled inside the Green Bay Five the other day. That one play alone might have cost them the game. And I mentioned all the drops. But Herbert, who was shaky earlier in the season, battling a broken finger on his non-throwing hand, now seems to be a lot more comfortable and is playing every bit as well as he has in other years. And he presents a problem. Even though the Chargers haven't performed as well around him on offense or on defense either, he is a problem. I generally think it's a good thing the Broncos have two left with the Chargers. They have, even in their bad years, going back to 2017, the first of what turns out to have been at least six straight losing seasons. During those six years, the Broncos have done pretty well against the Chargers generally, and the Chargers 
quarterbacked by Justin Herbert in particular. Herbert's had his moments, but generally the Broncos have been able to keep him in check, and they have won much more frequently against the Chargers in recent years than they have against the Raiders or the Chiefs. So the remaining schedule within the division looks favorable. And even within the conference, they've got the New England Patriots on Christmas Eve. The Patriots are the worst team this side of Carolina in the entire National Football League. So if you're looking at the two games they could lose, you look at Detroit, they could afford to lose that one, wouldn't affect them in tiebreakers. But similar to the Chargers' remaining schedule, which is entirely filled with AFC opponents, most all the Bronco games are against AFC teams, except for the game in Detroit. And maybe, maybe they could afford to lose at Houston. Maybe. Although Houston's one of those teams on the fringe of the playoffs, actually in the playoffs right now at 6-4, and four, by beating them, you might replace them. Pittsburgh can't generate any offense. Players are grumbling in Pittsburgh. The Steelers right now would be the last of the playoff qualifiers in the American Football Conference. Here's the flip side. And at this time yesterday, actually about 25 hours ago, this story broke that Kareem Jackson, who had already been suspended this year for two games by the National Football League for late hits, high hits, helmet-to-helmet hits, the NFL announced yesterday that it would be suspending Jackson again for four games. He says he'll appeal. Good luck with that. They already shortened his initial four-game suspension to two games. The chances of that happening a second time are slim and none. But the suspension this time comes out of a hit on Vikings quarterback Joshua Dobbs in the first quarter of the Sunday night Bronco win at Empower Field. Kareem Jackson is 35 years old. Second suspension this year. First came after a hit on Green Bay tight end Luke Musgrave on the 22nd of October. That got Jackson ejected from that ballgame. In September, in week two, he hit Logan Thomas after Thomas had caught a touchdown pass in the end zone, hit him late, got thrown out of that game. He was not penalized the other night for the hit on Dobbs. And my guess would be that if he has any argument on appeal, that would be the argument. Hey, I got two games for two late hits. That were flagged. I wasn't flagged in this instance. I was not flagged by any official for my late hit on Sunday night. Immediately on the NBC telecast, 
the hit was described as one that was deserving of, if not ejection, then at least a 15-yard penalty. And, of course, the Broncos got the ball as a result of Dobbs' fumble on the hit and proceeded to kick a field goal to go ahead in the ballgame 3 to nothing. Now, the Broncos might well have won the game even had Kareem Jackson been called and the Broncos not had that early scoring opportunity. They might have won anyway. Broncos been finding ways to win lately. But the only blight on the Broncos over the last month, closer to five weeks now, has been Kareem Jackson, who is now in that space of time while the Broncos have won, count them, four games in a row, been ejected from games and been suspended now twice. Suspended without pay. He'll appeal, as we indicated. But if it does remain at four games, Jackson will not be eligible to play until that Christmas Eve game here against the New England Patriots. And with P.J. Locke fighting an injured ankle that kept him out of the ball game the other day, the Broncos really don't have a replacement for Kareem Jackson. I'm not sure they were that much better the other night with Kareem Jackson in the lineup, but this is a fact, regardless of what my opinion may be. Kareem Jackson played every single snap during the game that the Broncos won on Sunday night here against the Minnesota Vikings. Every single snap. And only three other defensive players played 100% of the time for the Broncos on Sunday night. When we come back, speaking of ejections, the Nuggets had two last night and survived to win. Thank goodness they were playing the Detroit Pistons. We'll talk about that next. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Well, the Nuggets had a far more interesting experience in Detroit than perhaps they had anticipated last night. This is the defending world champions going against a team that has been at or near the bottom of the Eastern Conference for many, many years. The Pistons have a new coach this year in Monty Williams, and they have a terrific young guard in Kay Cunningham, who missed last year uh, with a serious knee injury, but was in the lineup last night. Uh, the Pistons are 2-13 and 13 now, having been beaten by the Nuggets 107-103. But the game was interesting because the head coach and the best player in the world got thrown out in the first half. And it already 
even at the point that those two ejections took place, Malone's at the end of the first quarter and Nikola Jokic is at the end of the second quarter. The game was pretty close. Look at Jokic's line for the night. Nine points, five rebounds, five assists, one block, a turnover in 15 minutes of game action. He was a minus four. So the Nuggets weren't doing great with Nikola Jokic in the game. And they were only leading, I believe, by four at the end of the first quarter, 27-23. And by the end of the first quarter, Mike Malone was gone. Malone said after the game that he apologized to his team for leaving them alone out there. But, of course, I'm sure Michael Malone would be the first to admit the ejection of Jokic was more significant. Second game of a rust belt back-to-back for the Nuggets, and they lost the first game in Cleveland to a pretty good Cleveland team. Not a bad loss. They lost by 12. The game wasn't that close. But last night was one you you just put in the win column. Just by showing up, you're going to beat the Pistons. And yet it turned into a little bit of a test for the Nuggets that they certainly did not envision going in. Reggie Jackson bailed them out. As did Contavious Caldwell-Pope. The starting backcourt of the Nuggets now without Jamal Murray in the lineup combined for 41 points, six rebounds, nine assists, three steals, two blocked shots, and only three turnovers between the two starting guards. Both were plus three, Jackson over 32 minutes, and KCP over 36 minutes. They were the stars last night. Gordon and Porter picked it up in the fourth quarter ended up playing 37 and 38 minutes respectively. And Gordon finished 11-9-7 with a steal and two turnovers, a minus two over 37 minutes. Porter 14-11-2 with a block, four turnovers, minus one over 38 minutes. Both were better at the end, compensating for the absence of Jokic. But excellent work was done by Najee off the bench, with seven points in 14 minutes and a plus two. Christian Brown played 32 minutes last night as the Nuggets went with smaller lineups in the absence of Jokic. 15 points, six rebounds, two assists, a steal, a block, and a couple of turnovers. Plus 21 for Christian Brown last night in 32 minutes. Nobody on the court last night was anywhere near plus 21. Christian Brown might have been the best player on the court last night. Strouther and Watson also played. Watson was plus five in 13 minutes. And even uh, Pickett was plus one in seven minutes of play. The Nuggets finished the game shooting 46%, made 11 of 28 from three-point land. That's almost 39.5%, pretty good. Shot their fouls well, 16 of 21 although Detroit was 24-26 at the line. The Pistons only shot 44% from the field and 33% from three-point range. Both teams had 11 offensive rebounds and 32 defensive boards. The Nuggets, though, were the more unselfish team with 30 assists against 14 turnovers. The Pistons not nearly as good, and that was the difference in the game. 21 turnover, uh, I'm sorry, 18 turnovers and only 21 assists. 
So the Nuggets were the more uh, professional team, even playing without the two-time MVP, best player in the world, widely acclaimed, including by Bill Walton last night. I was listening to Walton doing the Kansas Chaminade game, and his references to Nikola Jokic were constant throughout a game between Kansas and Chaminade in Honolulu. I don't think Bill had gotten word that Jokic had been thrown out of the game last night in Detroit, nor would he have cared. He is the president of the Nikola Jokic fan club. So the Nuggets get a win right now. They're in the middle of a long road trip, and they are second overall in the West behind only the Minnesota Timberwolves, who have kind of been the story of uh, at least the Western Conference in the early part of this season, getting off to a 10-3 and start. The Nuggets are 10-4, and four, as is Oklahoma City. Another good story, rising young team. Dallas is 9-5. and five. Those would be the four teams right now that would have home court advantage in the playoffs. Sacramento and the Lakers are 5th and 6th. Then you have tightly bunched between 7-10, and 10, Phoenix, New Orleans, Houston, and Golden State. Uh, the Clippers, Utah, Memphis, Portland, and San Antonio uh, at least for now, would be out of uh, the play-in tournament. Yes, it is early. No one is better uh, on the differential between road wins and home losses than Minnesota's plus four in the West, and no one is worse than San Antonio's minus five. Uh, actually, that's a fairly big gap for this early in the season, but uh, Wembenyama or no Wembenyama, uh, nobody thought the San Antonio Spurs were even going to make the play-in tournament this year, nor did they think Portland would make it. And uh, Memphis is operating without Stephen Adams. Of course, John Morant on suspension for the first 25 games of the season. There are 13 games through that 25-game suspension to Morant, and the Grizzlies are 3-10. and 10. Utah 4-9, and nine, maybe slightly disappointed. And uh, the Clippers have James Harden and are 5-7. and seven. Uh, need we say uh, much of anything more. Back in uh, the East, Boston, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Miami are off to the best starts. Orlando and Indiana are fifth and sixth. The seven through ten teams, again, tightly bunched, New York, Cleveland, Atlanta, and Brooklyn. And those who are out of the picture for the moment anyway are Toronto, Chicago, Charlotte, Washington, and yes, Detroit now two and 13 after being beaten by uh, the Nuggets last night. So uh, the Nuggets road trip continues. Uh, the Avalanche back in action tomorrow night here against the Vancouver Canucks, who have been streaking early in the season, or even in first place for a little bit of time. Uh, to look at the Avalanche through 17 games, which is a eh, little more than a fifth of the season, they're 3-2 and two inside their own division. They have beaten Dallas. They've split two with St. Louis. They have lost to Nashville now, and they have beaten Chicago. They are 5-2 and two against the Pacific Division teams, losing to Vegas and winning against the Kings on opening night. They've taken two of three from Seattle and beaten Anaheim and San Jose. They're 3-1 and one, uh, back east 
against uh, the Metro Division teams, uh, having beaten Carolina, New Jersey, and the Islanders, and lost to uh, Pittsburgh against the other division back east. They played just the one game in Buffalo, and that was uh, one of those uh, shutout games that uh, the Avalanche sustained on the road uh, during a flat period. Uh, Actually, there haven't been many flat periods for the Avalanche this year. They've either been really, really, really good or really, really, really bad. Last night, a one-goal loss in Nashville, one of the few one-goal games played by the Avalanche so far this season. We will see you on Monday. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all. Our thanks to executive producer Danny Bailey and to our guest today, Marty Richardson from Dog Nation. We'll see you on Monday. Stay with us right here on Mile High School.